I want to introduce at this time a, a special guest to be with us, actually he and his wife. Uh, Sanjeev Ailawadi comes from the country of India, and uh, his wife Sushila is here as well, and I hope you'll have a chance to meet them after the service as well. They are wonderful people. They live in the city of Delhi. They provide leadership to a wonderful church in that city called The Hub, and also leadership for the outreach ministries of that church, which is called The New Generation. It's fantastic. It's a place that cares for young women uh, who have been involved in the trafficking uh, issues, uh, for those who are rescued, for girls who age out of the system to continue that care for them, for HIV children, HIV children, for schools that they've started in slums, for proactive works in schools throughout Delhi to make issues of gender uh, more uh, on the forefront of people's minds. So it's a great work. Uh, this is a man uh, with his wife who are in there. They are in the front lines of this issue, this battle, and I'm very thankful for this couple and for Sanjeev as he comes to speak in just a moment. But before he does, I'd like to call your attention to the screen so you might get a little bit of a context for the work in India. There are 27 million modern slaves in the world today. Half a million are in India. Every day, about 200 girls and women in India enter prostitution, 80% of them against their will. Primary factors causing the girls to enter into prostitution stem from poverty. Many are tricked into the industry and are locked up for days, starved, beaten, and burned with cigarettes and electric wires until they learn how to service up to 25 clients a day. A few years ago, we embarked on our journey to take action against human trafficking. When I first went to India, I was struck with how privileged we are and could not imagine a child being forced to be with multiple men and being beaten if they refuse. For those children, there aren't days of watching a movie, playing at the park, or reading a bedtime story. Hundreds are forced into a life I can't even imagine. I think it's easy for us in Greeley, Colorado to hear the statistics, become overwhelmed, and just go on dealing with our common stressors of life. But Gospel Unleashed at Christ Community has allowed us to pray, support, and partner with believers who are making a difference in this injustice. Through our partnership with Ministries of New Generation, I have been so touched by how the people in their church truly are serving as the hands and feet of Jesus in Delhi. You're already familiar with Courage Homes, a place that promotes healing, transformation, and wholeness for girls under the age of 18 who have been affected by trafficking. But I'm so excited to share with you about a new home we are supporting under New Generation called Atulia. The vision of Atulia is to equip girls over the age of 18 ready to serve others in similar situations. It is a place of restoration and renewal while teaching job skills and helping women get their education. On our recent trip to Delhi, we met some amazing women from Atulia. Here is one of their stories. मेरे मम्मी पापा बहुत मेरे साथ अच्छा व्यवहार नहीं करते थे मेरे पापा ने मेरे साथ जब मैं 14 साल की थी उन्होंने मेरे साथ रेप किया था और फिर भी मम्मी को बताने के बाद उन्होंने मेरी मेरी बात का विश्वास नहीं किया उन्होंने बोला मुझे तुम्हारी बात पे विश्वास नहीं है 
मेरी मम्मी और मेरे पापा मुझे अलग अलग जगह लेके जाते थे बहुत सारी जगह लेके गए और फिर मेरे पापा भी मेरे साथ उन्होंने बहुत कंटिन्यू उन्होंने मेरे साथ रेप किया मेरी मम्मी भी डिस्को जाती थी उन्होंने मेरी सुनी नहीं और मुझे इस्तेमाल किया मुझे मुझे बेचा उन्होंने लोगों से पैसे लिए और फिर उसके बाद जब मैं बहुत परेशान हो गई जब मुझे लगा कि ओ अब मैं सहन नहीं कर सकती उसके बाद मैं घर से निकल गई एक होम में रही उसके बाद वहाँ पर एक पुलिस वाले अंकल आए उन्होंने वो उन्होंने मेरे स्टेटमेंट लिए उसके बाद जब जब मैंने केस किया तो उसके बाद मेरे मम्मी पापा मेरे पापा और मेरे मम्मी दोनों जेल में हैं अभी भी वो लोग जेल में अभी मैं अतुल्या में रह के मैं यहाँ पे अपनी पढ़ाई पूरा करना चाहती हूँ और यहाँ पर मुझे एक एक जीने का बेहतर तरीका मिला है मैं नई ज़िंदगी से शुरुआत कर सकती हूँ पुरानी बातों को भूल के एक नई नई ज़िंदगी में पैर रख रख सकती हूँ और मैं यहाँ पर अभी पढ़ाई कर रही हूँ और मैं पढ़ाई करने के बाद मैं टीचर बनना चाहती हूँ गॉड इज वर्किंग We met such amazing Christ followers in Delhi and I feel privileged we are able to respond to God's call through these powerful ministries. So I'd ask if you would give a warm Greeley Colorado welcome to Pastor Sanjeev as he comes. Well, I bring you warm greetings from Delhi in India, uh, from the Hub Church, and from the New Generation Works, of which I am privileged to be a part of, and I'm really privileged to be here this evening. I, uh, Steve, uh, and Rachel have been over. Rachel's been over twice, and Steve's over been over once. As I spend more and more time with Steve, I discover we have so much in common. and uh, we've been bonding a lot over the last few days we've been staying in his house especially over food times and meal times mexican italian and you know american and colorado or whatever you have and it's fantastic but i suspect the real reason why we are bonding is not because of all these things we've been doing and talking we like the same books we like the same music before we got saved and so many other things but the real reason is because of the fact that we share a common story even though it was at separate times we both sat on the back of a camel that galloped away so we have this bonding that comes out of these common stories anyway uh, i'm here not to tell you about the bonding that i have with steve but also to talk about what god has been laying on our hearts uh, i come from a hindu background i was uh, i was into drugs by the time i was 12 and uh, god saved me from that and i came into into new life and and in, into christ when i was 17 and uh, at that time uh, uh, i had already met my wife and uh, soon late, soon after i i came to christ i also discovered who i wanted to marry and she discovered it too unfortunately for her but <laughs> here i am and here we are as well um i i our journey as a church has been a, very closely linked with the journey as a family because uh, we always were searching for a, a community we always are searching for a church that would be centered around engagement i after i came to christ left aside the dream that i had of uh, making a lot of money 
and uh, started to do social work. I actually did my postgraduate in social work, and I don't have a theological background, so if you have, find any mistakes in my text, you can put it down to the fact that I'm, I'm a social worker with a sociologist. Uh, I'm a sociologist. I come from a social research background, not from a theological background. That's my only excuse. Um, but uh, as, we, as we continue in our journey, we were looking for a community experience and also for a church that engaged. And ultimately, when we didn't find one, God helped us to start one and, in fact, challenged us to start one. And I'm really privileged to be part of the New Generation community and the Hub Church that we found some very strongly um, uh, like-minded people who wanted to embark on the same journey with us to be community together and, uh, and also to engage in the city. So a lot of them are with us, and uh, as Steve said, he was already mentioned some of the works, Atulia and Courage Homes and, uh, and uh, Josiah, which works with the, with, with the immigrant community from the Northeast, and uh, slum schools and other things like that, which, though we are small, we have a big God, and he helps us to network with each other, network in the way we can with the resources that God gives us through people like yourselves, and, uh, and do the work that we're doing. I want to focus uh, on a few things today, and if I was to call this message anything, I would be calling it a biblical basis for engagement. Um, Genesis 19 gives us a very horrifying story of what happened to a city, or rather a group of six cities that were completely destroyed, as it says, by fire and brimstone, to later on today become the Dead Sea. And... Uh, um, you know, it's a horrifying story, not only of two cities being destroyed, but even more horrifying than that for me is the fact that it's a story of Lot and uh, his incest with his daughters. And my, I, I really want to focus on, you know, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Why were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Why does God destroy a nation? Why does God destroy a city? If you look at the prophets, you read Ezekiel, you read Daniel, you read Isaiah, you read uh, Jeremiah, you read right through the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Again and again, you come across God talking about how he would overthrow Assyria, how he would overthrow Babylon, and how he would be upset with Judah, and how, how strongly angry he was with Israel. And, you know, it seems like, you know, all those prophets tell us about the fact that God is sovereign, but again and again, we find the deep grief, the, grief the, the great burden that God has and uh, the great burden that the prophets have. You know, but coming to, coming to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Jonah, for instance, uh, when he was told to go and tell Nineveh that they were going to be destroyed, he, was, um, he didn't want to go because he said, God, I know the kind of person you are. The kind of person you are is forgiving you are gracious, you are a merciful God, you are slow to anger, you are abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So when I go there and tell them that they're going to be destroyed, you're going to do the opposite. You're going to actually forgive them. And sure enough, that's what God did. And so it seems like, you know, that's what God's heart is. And the Old Testament prophets knew that God was like that. So again, we come back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did God destroy them? Why was it that he looked at them and said, this is a city that has to go. And, you know, the, there seemed to be no warning. All the other nations that God destroyed, they had a warning from the Lord. It, with, in Amos uh, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, we, say that we see that God does nothing except that he first, wants, uh, that he first uh, shares it with his servants, the prophets, or shares it through his servants, the prophets. And yet, in Sodom and Gomorrah, there seemed to be no warning. So there must have been something really terrible there 
that would have caused God to take such quick and strict action. Well, let's have a look at the Bible. And I'd like the text to speak to us. And tonight I want us to put aside our prejudices. I want, to put, I want us to put aside our cultures. I want us to put aside our, even our mindsets and just accept what the text says to us rather than to uh, try to put on something on the text and interpret it in our own way, in whichever way you may have interpreted it earlier. Well, to begin with, we know from Genesis 18 that there were not even five righteous men in the city. So, as far as we are concerned, we had just one righteous man. As we learn later on, his name was Lot. But the whole city was very evil. We know also from Genesis 10, 19, that the people who lived there were not just you know, the other people from some other nation, but they were actually descendants of Canaan, who was the, great, the grandson of, of Noah. We also know that Shem, the son of Noah, was still alive when this destruction happened. And if you do the math or the arithmetic in Genesis 18, and I mean right from the beginning of Genesis to Genesis 19, you find that Shem was still living. And Shem was not only just living, but he even outlived Abraham. You also find that Noah was alive for two years, up to two years before Abraham died. And uh, before Abraham was born, I beg your pardon. And even though Abraham was, you know, ten generations away from, from Noah. So you have this very interesting uh, uh, situation there where you have Shem and you have Noah and you have the, some of the other patriarchs about whose names perhaps they don't even know who had a great influence upon that area. You know, these people were not just people who stood alone as a different community. These people were not just people who were the other people who lived in another nation who were heathen. These people were very much part and parcel of the people of God. These were Canaanites who had descended from Noah and from Shem, and, and, and from the same family, and they were people who would have known about God's word. They would have known about what God desired. They would have known about what God wanted, much like us in the church. So we are speaking about a people who knew about God, who would have known what God loved and what God hated. These were people in active rebellion against God. They would have had ample, ample warning from many, including their own traditions, which they did not heed. You know, in 1 Peter 4 and 17 and 18, it says the judgment always begins with the house of God. It doesn't begin with someone outside there. God always starts with his own people. And that fills me with a sense of dread that, you know, before I stand up and speak to anybody outside there, before I start criticizing and judging the people out there, before I start talking about the trafficking in India, and before I start talking about the trafficking outside my own church, I have to examine my own heart and see, am I okay? Am I, am I in the right place, God? Am I, am I doing right? Because God is no respecter of persons. He is here. His presence is here. And even as we look at videos that talk about trafficking in India, we wonder, you know, what is it in our own hearts? Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, a Jewish mystic, said these words. He said, all, a few may be guilty, but all are responsible. You know, you may not be guilty of what is happening out there, but we together are responsible for what was happening on this earth. The earth, it says the highest heavens, even the highest heavens belong to God, but the earth he has given to man. 
and we are responsible for this earth and what happens here, right? So let's see what the Bible says, and let's, let's let the text speak to us. In Jeremiah 23, 14, for the lack of time, I'm not going to be going there, it says that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would, had, were destroyed because they walked in adultery, they walked in lies, and they cultivated, they cultivated evil. There was a mindset that caused them to work and walk in a certain manner. You know, in, in, in Tamil Nadu, I remember there was, a, there was a tribe there 150 years back that was very oppressed, very exploited by the higher caste, and the women and the men were not permitted to wear anything above their waists just to keep them in that place of oppression. But um, as Christianity came there, as the missionaries came there, they accepted Christ, they got to know their rights, they started to get educated, and, and today, 150 years later, they are rich, they are in a good place. And you know, the very interesting thing is that the person who was telling me about this, uh, you know, the, the story about this, this tribe, they said that, you know, though they changed in their religion, and though they changed in the way they thought about God, and though they are Christians today, and though they are very, very rich, and are professionals, their mindsets haven't changed. And they are nominal. They don't really follow Christ. And the thing is, you know, we may come to Christ, we may get saved, we may come into a different place in our own personal relationship and walk with God, and we would find him to be our savior. But the big question is, have our minds, have our minds been transformed? Have our hearts been renewed? Have we become different people who think differently? Have we been removed from our culture which is perhaps sometimes good and perhaps sometimes not so good. And are we coming into a different place? Have we repented? In Isaiah 10, 15, it says that they were violent people and were murderers. In 2 Peter, 6, uh, 2, Peter 2, 6 to 11, it says that their conduct was filthy and lawless. They were rebellious people. They were, they were presumptuous. And in Jude 7, it talks about sexual immorality and perversion. But for me, this is not enough. You know, adultery, lies, filth, uncleanness. I see it in Delhi. I see it in Mumbai. I see it in different cities in the world. You might see it in your own cities. So why doesn't God destroy these cities? Why doesn't God destroy us in Delhi? Why doesn't God do something about what is happening here? Why focus on Sodom and Gomorrah? I think that there must have been something else. And I think the most clear uh, place in the Bible where God very clearly talks about why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 to 50. So if you have your Bibles here, please turn with me to Ezekiel 16, 48 to 50. And I'll be going through a lot of scripture because I want scripture to speak to you rather than for me to speak to you, right? In Ezekiel 16, 48 to 50, God says this, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your, systems, your sister Sodom nor your daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. So God is telling Israel that they are, have been in a bad place, that they have been in a much worse place than Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, in verse 49, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She, she and her daughters had pride. They had fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hands of of the poor and needy. And they were haughty, and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, I found that 
very distressing when I read it because I found that it wasn't sexual immorality. It wasn't uh, filth and perversion, but a very direct word from God in terms of saying, I destroyed them because they were rich, because they were arrogant, because they were indifferent, because they did not strengthen the hands of the poor and needy. And I started to even, you know, I wondered what God meant by the poor and needy. And as I study the Bible, I find that there are eight different definitions for the poor and needy. You know, the Hebrew language in, 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 in English, we read one word, poor or needy, and we understand it to mean just economically poor or perhaps a few other meanings. But in the Hebrew language, which is a very colorful and a very large language, you find that the word poor or the word needy means at least eight different things and used in eight different ways. It means the old and the infirm. It means the handicapped. It means the economically poor. It means the child, especially the girl child, the humble, those going through emotional stress and trauma, those spiritually oppressed, those displaced, the stranger or the refugee or the immigrant, right? So generally, it's used of anyone who is vulnerable, anyone in any context. And when it says it did not strengthen, they did not encourage, they did not support, they did not assist, and they did not aid the poor and needy. Some classical Jewish texts, you know, they stressed the cruelty and the lack of hospitality of the inhabitants of Sodom to the stranger. A tradition described in the Mishnah says that the sin of Sodom was related to property. Sodomites believe that not only what is mine is mine, but also, they believed in that what is yours is mine. So they didn't think that, you know, it's just a matter of what is mine is mine. I'm going to keep it for myself. But they also believed, according to, the, according to the, this tradition in the Mishnah, it says, what is yours is mine. And that's been the story of this world, you know. What is yours is mine. That's why countries try to rage against each other. That's why we have sin in this world. You know, where, that's why a neighbor looks at his, at, at his neighbor's spouse and, uh, and, and wants to grab him or her. That's why we have, you know, uh, robbery and stealing and lying and deceit because it's, it's not only what is mine is mine, I'm going to keep it for myself, but what is yours is mine. And country against country and individual against individual does that. You know, these were people who were rich, arrogant, and unfriendly. They were idle, it says in the Bible. And in 1985, from your country, a man called Neil Postman, he writes a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he says, our world has become like what Aldous Huxley predicted in his book, The Brave New World, where people were oppressed by their addiction, by their addiction to amusement and had medicated themselves into bliss. This is certainly true, I don't know about your country, but certainly true about urban India. And that's what's happening in our country. We have sort of narcotize ourselves into, into bliss, into amusement, into looking for different ways of being entertained. And uh, uh, the brave new world is an oppressive world, but it's oppressed by amusement and entertainment. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. The answer to Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness is given in Isaiah 117, which we just read. Learn to do good, seek justice, Rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Even as, if you read Isaiah 1.10, you will find that God is talking about his anger against Sodom and Gomorrah 
And in Isaiah 1.17, he clearly says, this is what you need to do to get rid of the problem that you have. Seek justice, learn to do good, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead the widow. The psalmist declares in Psalm 1989.14 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Later, Micah said in his, in his book, in chapter 6, verse 7, uh, you know, we need to act justly. He has shown you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord desire of you? That you should act justly, laugh tenderly, and walk humbly before him. Justice seems to be something which is very close to God's heart. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So what is justice? You know, sometimes when we hear about a, a court hearing, a court, a court uh, um, uh, verdict, and we say justice has been done because the guilty have been punished, or we say justice has been done because the innocent was set free. So what is justice? And justice in the, in the Bible means something a little different, and I love the way a commentator puts it. He says this, the justice is the perfect congruence between God's thoughts and our actions. So justice is not all about the verdict of the innocent and the guilty, but justice is the perfect congruence between God's thoughts and our actions. And so we are people, the body of Christ, who express through our actions the thoughts of God in this world. And when we do that, justice begins to happen. When in our systems, we begin to express through our systems the actions, the the, the thoughts of God, we find that justice begins to happen. Justice and righteousness are the foundations of his throne. In Isaiah 58, God is angry with those who have not shared their bed with the hungry, declaring that the fasts of Israel are hollow as long as they, you know, they oppressed others, exploited the poor. The answer by, in Isaiah 57, 8, 7 to 9 is the fast that God chooses is to share your bread with the hungry. Bring your house to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The prophet calls this a response of righteousness and says that our cries will only reach God when we begin to reach out to the marginalized. In the New Testament, Jesus emphasizes again in Matthew 24 and 25, when in, verse, in, in the Olivet Discourse, when he was asked by his disciples, show us the signs of the time when you will come again. Show us the end of the age. And Jesus then describes the time when the temple would be destroyed and something terrible, some terrible calamities would happen. And uh, while his disciples are still listening, he gives them three parables. His first parable is the parable of ten virgins. The second parable is the parable of the talents. But he ends up with the parable of the sheep and the goat. And he says that, you know, when the Son of Man comes again in all his glory... He will, he, will, he will put the, the sheep on the right hand and the goat on the left hand. And those who are the sheep, he describes as people who have helped the marginalized, who have gone and blessed them, who have reached out to the prisoner, who have reached out to the naked, to the hungry. And the goat, he describes as people who have not. And I think that that gives us a, a sort of a sense of engagement, a sense of saying, you know, if you read the Bible, you can't help but come to the conclusion 
that God's heart is a heart that reaches out to those who are suffering. God's heart is a heart that reaches out to those who are in need. God's heart is a heart that says, come on, go and get involved. In fact, when you read the entire Old Testament and you start reading the New Testament with this perspective, you find again and again the prophets emphasize just systems, righteous acts, reaching out to the marginalized, reaching out to the poor. I find it so amazing because, you know, in John, when, when he ri- he's writing his epistle, he says in 1 John 3, 14 to 15, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, our very salvation, that we are passed from death to life, depends on whether we love our brother. But then John unpacks what it means, what what loving our brother is all about. In 1 John 3, 17, he says, But whoever has his world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Since we have a common father, our brother and our sister are not those in our local church only, but anyone in the world, anyone in your city, regardless of their nationality, their gender, their color, and their religion. You know, Pope Francis recently said that the church has grown obsessed with abortion, with gay marriage, and with contraception. He criticized the church for putting dogma before love, for prioritizing moral doctrines over serving the poor and the marginalized. We have to find a new balance, otherwise the church is likely to lose the freshness and the fragrance of the, new, of the gospel. You know, when you, look at the, when you look at the world today, the Christian world today, it's all about dogmas and doctrines. Is it right to speak in tongues? Is it wrong to speak in tongues? Is it right for infant baptism? Is it better for adult baptism? Is, it, is this right? Is that right? Should women be preaching from the pulpit? Should women not be preaching from the pulpit? And all the doctrinal things that sort of put the Methodists and the Pentecostals and the X and the Ys and the Zs all separate from each other. I come from a Hindu background. I don't understand these divisions because I would look at the church and think it's all one. But now I look at it and think, oh my goodness, we're even more fragmented than those that I see in the world. And the thing is, the prophets were not concerned about the dogmas and the doctrines. As far as they were concerned, they were only concerned about one thing. Do our actions please God or do they make God angry? Do our actions make God sad? Does God despair when he looks at us? Or is God happy with us? And so I, but let's go beyond what I've written here. I remember once when I was uh, traveling in Delhi, uh, we have street kids who meet us at every street corner, at every traffic light, and they ask, they tap on your glass of your car and say, give us some money. And so sometimes he would give money and sometimes he wouldn't. And this time when we stopped at a flyover uh, at, a street, uh, at a street light, uh, a, a young man, uh, maybe over 15, 16 years old, tapped on my car and asked for money. And I took out a five rupee coin and gave it to him and rolled up the window again and went back to talking to my wife. But I heard him take the five rupee coin and started ta- he started tapping again. And I said, what's wrong with this guy? I gave him five times more than I normally give anybody else. I've just given him enough money. And I looked at him and said, what's the matter with you? I just put my, I gestured like that. And he looked at me and he looked desperate. And he tapped again. And I told him, go. 
And he took the five rupee coin and he put it in the flap between the glass and the rubber and he walked away. And the lights turned green and I had to move on. It taught me a lesson that day. God was telling me, I don't need your beliefs. I don't need your theologies. I don't need your action and your programs. I need your heart. And this poor man was telling me, I don't need your money. Keep your money. I need you as a person to respond to me and to bless me and to touch me and to see me as a person. Not as a poor man. Not as a person who is there, down there, which I've got to, you know, give away money to because he's a beggar. Not because I'm being patronizing. But because he's a human being. The poor don't need our money. Tossed at them as they beg at our doorsteps. When and if we feel like it. They want to be recognized as equals, as human beings, as people who hurt, who suffer, who cry, who are in anguish, in deep and terrible pain. They need to be restored to their humanity, to be human beings once again. The whole brutality that they've gone through, the kind of stories that we hear from the streets of people being sodomized, children who have been caught by the police being, being taken to police stations and sodomized 15 to 20 times in one night. They need to be restored back to seeing that they're human beings. They need to be restored to being human beings who are given respect, restored to dream again, to hope again, and live again. My heart was shattered at that time, and I'm still working that out. This happened 10 years back, and I'm still working that out in my own heart. And it leads me to end with looking at Matthew chapter 8. It is a fascinating story which we come across in the, in the, in the ministry of Jesus. And, it's, and it says this, that when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Now, you know the lepers in those days were shunned, were ostracized, were not permitted to stay in the same city. They had to stay outside the city. And when they came inside the city, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean so that the people would disperse and run away from them. And if they were found in any place near other people, people stoned them and, 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 drew, and drove them away. So this man had grown up ostracized. He had grown up outside the city. He had felt like God had left him, that there was no possibility for him to be saved or rescued from his disease. Leprosy was concerned, was, was supposed to be the, the curse of God upon people. And so this man would have felt cursed. And so when he came to Christ, he said, if you are willing, make me clean. I want to ask you today, not about India, but are you willing? Because you and I, the body of Christ, are what expresses Christ to people today. Are you willing? Are you willing to reach out? Are you willing to bless? Are you willing to reach out to somebody who's at risk, who's vulnerable in your own city, in your own family, in your own, in your own office, wherever you work, in your own neighborhood? Or are you not willing? If you are willing, make me clean. 
And then Jesus did something completely radical for those times. He reached out and touched him. That man felt the touch of somebody. Everybody else stopped touching him. But God touched him and said, I am willing. Be thou clean. If you're willing, if I'm willing, we will go and touch people. We will meet them where they're at. We will touch their hearts, touch their minds, relate with them as people, not as poor people, and give them our patronizing rupees or dollars or whichever currency you have, but as people who are worthy of being treated as the sons and the daughters of God. Can we pause and reflect and just consider what has been said? And let's just pray and ask God to touch us, that we may be willing people, willing to be the body of Christ, the hands of Christ in this world, reaching out to those who are disadvantaged, disenfranchised, people who are marginalized, people who are immigrants, the stranger, the refugee, remembering that we too were spiritual lepers once, and God touched us and healed us. Can we bow our heads as we pray? Father, I wish I could say that I'm willing. I wish I could say that I'm willing to give up my comfort zone and follow you utterly. I wish I could say that I'm willing to, to give up this whole business of grabbing and looking for what the others have and wanting the same for myself. I wish I could say that you, O oh Lord in Christ, are able to Help me to get rid of all this that I have inside me. I wish I could say that with victory in my heart, Lord. And I know that my brothers and sisters here wish for the same thing. Not in despair, but in hope. Because you have taken us from death to life. You've taught us to love when we ourselves were so unlovable. You taught us to reach out when we ourselves needed to be reached out to. You rescued us and you are teaching us, Lord, today to be rescuers. Lord Jesus, help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, to reach out, to touch, to be willing, so that others, as we have been made clean, would also be made clean. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to spend a few minutes worshiping God enthroning him in our praise and saying, God, we're coming to you. We're worshiping you. We're looking to you. Would you have your way in us tonight? And as we do, as we sing, uh, know that you can sit, you can stand.